Welcome to the Fit for Tomorrow podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Sanders, physical therapist, and together I hope we can explore the best ways to stay fit, healthy, and active as busy adults. We all have a lot on our plate. So what is the most efficient way to exercise, eat, sleep, and train in order to continue to do the activities we love well into our future? I hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right, guys, uh, excited today to be here with Dr. John Campione. Um, he's a chiropractor and instructor for Rock Tape. And um, we wanted to kind of dive into this idea of the interaction between manual therapy, exercise, what's happening at the, the central level at the brain. Um, actually, we connected on Instagram. I've been following his posts and uh, just the talk on the cerebellum and some of the exercise things you're doing. I thought it'd be cool to sit down and chat. So uh, thanks for coming. You want to introduce yourself quickly to... Sure, man. Yeah, uh, I appreciate being here. Um, like you said, uh, my name is John Campioni. I am a uh, rock tape instructor for going into my seventh year now, uh, teaching all of our different courses. I'm also a full-time faculty member at the uh, National University of Health Sciences, teaching functional rehabilitation to chiropractic students. Very cool. Very cool. How'd you get connected with rock tape and like kind of what got you into that world? It's a funny story because I was recalling this with someone um, that we were uh, kind of uh, saying goodbye to with, within the Rock Tape family. But uh, I, my my wife and I, my wife and I met in school. We practiced together, and she had in school been trained in taping. And I was looking for some continuing education. This was many years ago, and I was like, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit of taping. And the education that she had, you know, we we we're doing our own reading and kind of seeing different things. And we wanted kind of a different perspective. So I, I saw a rock tape course and I, you know, read up and I liked the way that they were kind of presenting themselves. So I took a course, I was blown away. Uh, I took uh, that. This was back when there was only tape. So I took a tape course. I was blown away with the approach and the way that they were talking about tape applications and what it can do. Um, I was blown away by it. So I was perusing the website after the course and I just saw something down at the bottom. It was like, Hey, want to join our team? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. I, I, I always had the itch to teach more, especially postgraduate. Um, and, uh, I reached out to them and I asked them, you know, what can I do to become an instructor? And we just kind of went through the onboarding process. I shadowed different instructors and then I kind of just jumped into it. I, I personally, like somebody else, uh, in the more administrative role could probably tell you more details to it. I personally think that I just kind of got accepted somehow <laughs> and I went into it. Like I still to this day, cause this is a group of individuals that I completely, uh, admire and love. And I learned so much from all of them. I'm like, why am I in this group? You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's that situation, but, um, yeah, that was it. I reached out to them because I had a desire to really, you know, teach some postgraduate courses and I, I loved what they were doing. So, you know, use that as a, as a lesson, anybody who's looking to, to teach for any, any groups or anything like that, you know, if it's something that you enjoy, reach out, say, how, how can you help them? Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I actually don't do a ton of taping. Um, like I could mention before, I, I do a lot of cupping and scraping and, and dry needling. I teach for integrative dry needling. And what I think is unique is when I see some of the rock tape content that's put out and which of course, what you're putting out is this neurologic approach to, to looking at manual therapy and, and looking at exercise. Um, and, and specifically the stuff you've been doing with the cerebellum lately on your, on your social media feed, what got you interested in the cerebellum? Like, how did you go down that path? Ah, oh, that rabbit hole come join yeah. me. Right. Um, 
it's funny because it it really kind of came on it insidiously. It, it grew. I took some coursework through uh, applied movement neurology uh, several years ago. I actually um, do some work with them still to this day. It's a, it's a great group uh, that really took it. They took a very neurological approach to movement and training. And then they had some aspects that could go into more clinical work as well too. Um, and then teaching for rock tape really kind of got me even further into the neurological basis between be, behind manual care. And, and I will, we'll get into that eventually. I know, but the cerebellum specifically came from starting to study with applied movement neurology, uh, because it was a, a huge basis for looking at movement and looking for movement dysfunction as well too. And that kind of lit the spark, lit the spark. Yeah. Analogy works. Um, that kind of started it for me and, you know, going, diving deeper into the neurology that I had to, you know, review and study and know to teach for rock tape as we started to progress into tape and tools and, 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 and cups, uh, and other stuff like that. I, I started to just really be fascinated with this little brain, which is, you know, how the cerebellum is translated this little brain and how it integrates movement. And, and I, I very much am and, and always was a movement guy. Like I love looking at the human system, but I started to really appreciate that when we look at movement, we're actually looking at output from the central nervous system. We're looking at output from the brain in our rock tape courses. We teach so much about input and how important the uh, appropriate novel, non-threatening stimulus is to provide into the nervous system so that we can get the appropriate output. But one thing I noticed throughout a lot of uh, study uh, teaching myself, uh, I used to teach uh, just uh, college anatomy and physiology, and I, I, I've taught and covered a couple of the neurology classes uh, at, uh, at my, my graduate school here and stuff like that. And one thing I just noticed is that the cerebellum really gets overlooked quite a bit. It's not discussed unless you're in, you know, that kind of world that the, the research world, it doesn't really get mentioned a lot other than movement coordination and that it plays a role in smooth coordinated movement patterns. We all kind of know that. And just looking into it more, there's so much more detail to it because it's involved in so many different things. And my fascination just came from reading more and more about it, finding different resources, and then realizing that it's not just about dunking a basketball. Interesting that I use uh, an example that I cannot do, but it's not just about a particular movement pattern or a accomplishing a task. It's so much more than that. The intricacies of just reaching out and grabbing my coffee cup and taking a sip, speech, vision, uh, really just how your eyes function, not visual acuity specifically, but posture, all those things, the cerebellum has to play a role in it. And I think what it also did is really help me appreciate that no one system, no one structure can really work all by itself within the body too. So it's interesting to see, you know, in my study of the cerebellum, how it takes me into different areas of the brain and the rest of the central nervous system. And then I start to think about how the periphery works on top of that. So it really just came out of uh, uh, an initial fascination with study and then just dove headfirst down that rabbit hole. And I haven't climbed out since. Yeah. I, I think that idea of, of how the systems tie together, I know we all want it to be simple, right? Like uh, if I just push oh, yeah. on this, this happens. Right. And you want that to be a simple answer and to be able to, to nail down one thing, but 
understanding that interaction, if you're going to be an effective clinician, it's just so important. Um, for, for people listening that have no idea what the cerebellum is, how would you describe it in a nutshell? Ah, the cerebellum uh, in a nutshell. The cerebellum in a nutshell, I do describe in a nutshell, is basically... Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take from uh, what a friend and mentor of mine, Eric Cobb, uh, founder of Z Health, says. The cerebellum is all about the ABCs of movement: accuracy, balance, coordination, and speed. So the main job of the cerebellum is for motor coordination, is the way that I kind of say it. When you move, there is communication between those voluntary areas of the brain and the cerebellum. The cerebellum double checks to make sure that the movement is a smooth, complete, and coordinated movement so we don't get hurt or injured or we don't uh, you know, uh, do anything that would be threatening to the system. Now, having said that, there is so much more to the cerebe- cerebellum itself. But for anybody who is going to you know, introduce themselves to this structure, that's what you're going to see firsthand is you're going to see how it's incorporated with voluntary movement and how it kind of checks over whatever movement you're trying to do to make sure it's smooth and coordinated. Yeah. Yeah. So I think traditionally we kind of think of it as like, or at least I guess this would be my understanding. It's just kind of, it's like a, it's a baseline thing. And to be honest with you, before reading some of your stuff, I don't know how much attention I would play into it. Um, I'd look a lot at the vestibular system, the input of the cervicogenic system into the vestibular system, uh, of course, how the brain's deciding. So where is that overlap or, or clinically, you know, assuming it's not like a, somebody had a stroke or something along those lines, but in a, in a typical traditional population, where do you see that value adding in or, or why should we care? I guess is the question. You, you, you cannot have appropriate function without the cerebellum. And again, I have to constantly point out it's no one thing all by itself, but I think it's something that we do need to address uh, just a little bit more closely. So what we have to pay attention to is the fact that the example that you put in there is, is the vestibular system right, right, right off the bat. The vestibular system plays such an important role in its coordination with the cerebellum because staying upright as upright bipedal individuals, it's extremely important for us to access postural muscles to maintain an upright position that has a lot to do with spinal musculature as well as the vestibular system. So without the communication between the vestibular system and the cerebellum, we actually would have a great deal of balance issues going on. The visual system works directly with the the cerebellum as well too, because any sort of movement, obviously there's exceptions, but any sort of movement is going to involve some sort of gaze fixation or smooth pursuit that might have to occur, whether it's following an object or dodging an object or just trying to accomplish a smooth coordinated pattern. And one thing you can look at is the idea of vision, vestibular, and proprioception really being incorporated as a, a, a quick summarization of overall movement function. If we have one of those systems being off and the other system has to compensate for it, we start to see dysfunction. A classic example of that is if you've ever stood on one foot and then you closed your eyes and you lost balance uh, pretty quickly when your eyes closed. What you're doing is you're removing the visual system and you're asking for the proprioceptive and the vestibular system to basically kind of make up for the visual system. And a lot of us, because we have the ability to, we have the ability to utilize our visual system 
thoroughly throughout most of, if not all of the day. And of course there's people with, you know, visual issues and blind people, there's, there's exceptions, but when we are relying so much on our visual system, you get a lot of people that don't rely as much or they don't train or stimulate as much their proprioceptive and, and, and vestibular system. So these are people with like sedentary lifestyles, for instance, they are not challenging themselves vestibularly or proprioceptively to the point to where they're not stimulating the cerebellum. They're relying a lot on their vision to kind of coordinate their movement. You stand on one leg you can hold your balance, but the moment you close your eyes, you've taken away the dominant system. And now we're starting to see that the vestibular system the and or the proprioceptive system cannot make up for what the visual system has already done. And those three systems all work to coordinate movement with the cerebellum in, in and of itself. Now there's different structures, different areas of the cerebellum where this occurs. We don't need to get into that kind of detail, but um, by looking at just your base level uh, functionality of human life. We need these three systems to work together and we have to really appreciate the cerebellum uh, on top of that to really understand how all of these are functioning appropriately, because there is, you have to consider this as well too. There is a lot of subconscious or subcortical, if you will, meaning under the cortex, um, functionality that comes from most of the areas in our brain for most of our day. A lot of what we do is fairly automatic. If I can say that the conscious effort that we put into our daily life is very important to us, but most of what we do day to day is actually fairly subconscious, fairly subcortical. So it's involving a lot of different structures that are not within our own voluntary control. The, the cerebellum is one of those structures. So it's a very important subcortical subconscious structure. That's always coordinating with more of those conscious areas of the brain to help make sure everything is running as smoothly as possible. So if you've ever noticed when you are um, stressed out or confused or something like that, you get that people, what do people call it? They call it tunnel vision. Um, you know, I, I, I was so mad. I got tunnel vision. I was just focused on that one thing. You know, there is some neuroscience to that to tell us how we could actually be missing things in our periphery. If you've ever had anybody tell you that there have been situations where uh, they just literally just didn't see something. You know what I mean? You've probably had this experience before yourself, Nick, is like, I just didn't see that, you know, uh, the old, anybody who's married will have this experience is I'm yelling to my wife, like, Hey, where's this in the fridge? I can't see it. I can't see it. And then she comes in and she just grabs it and it's right there. Right. <laughs> but there's different situations where the vestibular or even the visual system are interacting within other areas of the brain, particularly the cerebellum, where it has to kind of hone in on its focus regarding what sort of uh, task at hand are we, are we really trying to accomplish right now? What are we trying to do and how does it affect, you know, the, the overall threat to the system that could potentially be there? Yeah, so it sounds like we're we're tying in a lot of the autonomic nervous system and and that kind of sympathetic parasympathetic um, activation. How do you separate? Yeah. And, and separate is not the right word, but you know, from a balance standpoint, we're going to dive into some of the vestibular system uh, piece. How how does your training differentiate with your appreciation of of cerebellar input from kind of a classical training the vestibular system or training balance? Uh, you mentioned the visual proprioceptive piece. Um, what else would you include or, or differentiate, you know, so from, go ahead. I was gonna say, you know, like classically, 
you start to link eyes and, and ears and we start to do VOR exercises and we start yeah. to do tracking and saccades and, and things were challenging visual perception, neck range of motion and, and, you know, equilibrium from a vestibular standpoint, mm-hmm. when you add that layer of, of considerations for the cerebellum, is there something that you would do differently or, or challenge differently? That's the thing is, you know, if, trying to study all this stuff and, and let me, I guess I, I could say preface, but I guess it's going back. I, I, I'm not an expert uh, by no means. I, I'm always still learning with this. But what I find fascinating is the new stuff that I learn all the time. And and that's that's actually a really great question, Nick, because that's one thing I talk about all I, I think about all the time. It doesn't necessarily change exactly how I'm doing stuff, but it might change what I'm doing. By that, I mean the what is I'm going to include more visual uh, uh, exercises, more, more direct vestibular exercises. And I can think about it from almost like a sided perspective, whereas like left cerebellum is receiving input from the left side of the body. It communicates with the right side of the cortex, the cerebral cortex. So I can start to utilize my, my training, my practice based on something as simple as like range of motion dysfunction. If I'm a little bit limited in range of motion, especially active range of motion, I could do a quick coordination cerebellar test, like your, your rapid coordinated, you know, movement patterns like that, like the the really quick pronation supination. And if I see a difference, say on that left side versus that right side, what it will do basically is it will, it will, it will show me that I might need to feed that side a little bit more, meaning I will feed that left cerebellum. And I could also in turn be feeding more stimulation onto the right cortex. So how could I go to the right cortex even more, any sort of sensation on that left side? Cause, cause we know voluntary movement, conscious touch, all crosses and it goes, what goes into and comes from that right cortex is the left side of the body. So what I could do is you see all these different things out there, like vibration rollers and percussion guns and stuff like that. Tape, uh, cups, all those things are providing a novel stimulus to the system. It's input. So if I provide input to, in the example, I'm using that left side, not only am I feeding that right cortical, uh, uh, area that, that sensory homunculus, but I'm also actually feeding into that left side cerebellum from a movement perspective. What I would need to do is, is roughly the same thing, but in the, in the opposite direction. So I could, you know, be working and thinking right cortex. How do I, how do I, you know, stimulate the right cortex or use it? If you will, I will do movement on my left side, but that is also going to be feeding and utilizing the cerebellum on the left side as well too. So my approach really got honed into this kind of sidedness and it's never that perfect. It's never going to be like, Oh, everything is wrong. What's wrong with you is only on the left side. That's all we need to do, but it helps me kind of hone in on my practice a little bit more adding visual and vestibular drills just got started to be a little bit more specific. So I will start to add in, you know, different aspects of, uh, saccades, smooth pursuit, gaze fixation because of the way that the eye movement actually can stimulate the canals. It just goes back to that sided perspective is if I wanted to feed my left cerebellum, I know I'm also working with that right cortex. How, what are other ways that I can do that from a movement perspective directly, especially those of you who are more less in the manual therapy world and more in the movement world. It's just novel types of movement patterns. So what it started to really approach, and again, the how didn't really change. It's the what. 
the idea of more novel, multi-joint, multi-directional, multi-planar types of movements are more stimulating to different areas of the brain, crossing the midline more stimulatory to different areas of the brain. One of those areas, obviously, is the cerebellum. Proprioception is fed by movement. I I love this aspect. I always say it is a sensation that is fed by movement or an input that's fed by movement. If the more we move, the more proprioceptive uh, proprioceptive, uh, stimulation we can provide. That's going to feed up into that cerebellum on whatever side. That's the nice thing is cerebellum is always ipsilateral when you're testing it or when you're drilling it. But we know that it crosses over that cortex. So we have you know, dual involvement with different brain structures, among other things as well, too. And what it really changed for me is just focusing a little bit more on moving more freely, moving more abstractly, not fixing myself directly into one plane of motion all the time. And it got me out of the idea of, I don't want to say this in a mean way. I don't want to take take the wrong way. It got me out of the traditional uh, training model which is adapted from bodybuilding essentially. So, you know, the, the traditional training model is you work different areas in isolation. You work one area of the body. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially if hypertrophy and bodybuilding is your goal. But for me, and especially my patients as well too, it's more about just moving more freely like a human being. So it helped me understand that I could use resistance. I could use movement in a much more abstract way and start to stimulate the nervous system a bit more. I will get the benefit, the physical benefits that everybody's looking at for exercise, but I'm also going to incorporate a little bit more stimulation into the brain and really try to bring it all together and feed that nervous system the way that I want it to. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. I, I've always kind of struggled with this idea. When, when we look at manual therapy, it's a especially in, in our model with what we do with integrative dry needling, it's a very neurologic approach, right? Yeah. Which, which nerve pathways involved? How do we, we, you know, whether it's a chemical environment or a nerve guarding, how do we change that, that input? But then when we go to do our exercises, we get so isolated and okay, well, it's this muscle. So let me do, you know, this particular exercise. And we kind of lose that, that focus on the neurologic system. Um, But I want to back up for a second. Uh, When you're seeing a client, you mentioned you were doing some kind of like rapid alternating movements for testing. Are you specifically screening cerebellar tests and and what tests are you looking at in your, with your clientele? Yes. Yeah. So going back to to the cerebellum in a nutshell, the cerebellum in a nutshell um, is base. I say basically, but it's, it's never that simple, right? Right. Um, Cerebellum in a nutshell is the coordination of agonistic, uh, uh, agonistic uh, activity followed by antagonistic activity, uh, what can be called diadochokinesia. Diadochokinesia is the ability to supinate, then quickly pronate, and then supinate. So most people are familiar with this kind of, I'm trying to get on camera so you can see it, this kind of like hand slapping. So I'm supinating, pronating as quickly as I can and trying to determine, is it smooth? Is it coordinated? Is it accurate? Am I like missing my palm? And is my speed appropriate? If somebody has that, that's a classic cerebellar test, classic coordination test. They refer to it as dysdiadochokinesia. So a lot of people are more familiar with the the concept of dysdiadochokinesia. Diadochokinesia is simply just that. So let's use a better example, gait, arm swing. What happens during gait with arm swing? You flex at the shoulder, you extend at the shoulder, you flex at the shoulder. Yes, other things are happening in the hips, obviously, but 
that is agonistic action, antagonistic action, agonist, antagonist. The cerebellum really helps to coordinate that type of movement pattern. So when it is more of that smooth and rapid coordinated patterns, and this is typically referred to as rapid coordinated movements, or sometimes referred to specifically the one with the hand, rapid alternating pronation, supination. But I call them rapid coordinated movements because you can do it just about anywhere. I could do it at the shoulder and just have someone kind of turn at the shoulder as quickly as they can. And if there's dysfunction, then I'm going to start to see, you know, different sort of movement patterns, waves, rather than just that, you know, smooth axis type of, of movement. Now, having said that, those kind of tests, at least what I look for, I'm not a, um, a, a traditional neurologist. I don't work with neurological pathologies. I appreciate this stuff on, on a, a level that I refer to as subclinical, meaning I'm going to find people with dysfunction in their cerebellum but it's not true like cerebellar ataxia. It doesn't necessarily have a very specific diagnosis or diagnostic code for it. It's you have shoulder pain and through these coordination patterns, I found that the left side, you have some problems with coordination me telling me that left-sided cerebellum, we might have some dampened function. I use the term dampened a lot because I think it's a little bit easier to fathom wrap your head around than just to say dysfunctional. Cause a lot of people can, you know, what does that mean to a lot of different people? So I use a lot of those rapid coordinated movements. I observe gait quite a bit. When you see somebody who's walking and they have limited or no arm swing on either side, it points to that same side. When you look at eye movements, you could look at what are called saccades. So saccades really easily, you can do this. And I recommend anybody doing, if you're going to do this on yourself, prop up your camera, record, hold your thumbs about shoulder width apart, and then you're going to look at the center. And then to do it to yourself, you would just go from thumb to thumb like that. And what you want to pay attention to is whether or not you're hitting your target. So if I go to the left and I miss, like my eyes go just past the thumb and then they come back or they fall short and then they have to catch up. There is a uncoordinated type of movement for that horizontal plane with the eyes that goes back again to the idea of cerebellar involvement with that. Um, and different resources will say whether or not it's, it's shooting overshooting or undershooting. Um, I tend to just look at the inaccuracy of it as well. Too. The thing I have to consider too, though, is just movement in general. If you're doing movement screening, if you're looking at those things, there's just going to be some involvement to, of the cerebellum as far as the, the movement dysfunction that, that's there. So that's not easy. You can't just say that to someone and be like, yeah, then go do it because how does it get incorporated? That's why I go into a little bit more with the specificity of different tests. And there's so many other tests out there. There's a few others that I use as far as like accuracy. There's the finger to nose accuracy tests and stuff like that too. But I tend to just look at almost everything and understanding like, where is that circuitry off? You know, you mentioned the pathways with dry needling. I kind of have that approach as well too, is what sort of different connections at more, a little bit more broadly is like one side of the brain to the cerebellum versus, you know, how is it connecting out to the periphery? And that's my approach to it. But ultimately I go back to, there's some in coordination with a pattern where you're trying to go into flexion, then go into extension or something like that, which relates a lot to athletic competition as well as just normal life.
Yeah. You see that arm swing, uh, difference arm swing side to side. I see that pretty regularly. Um, I, I was going to add, I was going to add, I don't, you know, I don't do a lot of rapid movement testing in, in my screening. How often are you seeing that in, in a gen population, like a general population? A lot, a lot. Yeah. Honestly, you see it a lot. And again, it's subclinical. It's not sure. like, oh my God, you have a neurological disease. I don't want anybody to think that that's what I'm treating. And I don't want anybody to think that if you come see me, that's what I'm going to imply. But what I'm going to get from that basically is that one side is going to be different than the other. And this is something I teach to my students. Um, When you don't know someone, someone first comes to you and you've never seen them, you never met them. The, one of the best things you can look at is symmetry. So how do I know what their normal is? But, but if I see a symmetry on either side, if I see dysfunction, function on one side versus another side that can tell me a lot about the individual. So what you will see, and this is why I I say I'm, I'm seeing it a lot in the general population is you see that just one side is a little bit off comparatively to the other side. And a lot of people jump to, well, handedness, right? You know, like my left side's worse than my right side. It's just because I'm right-handed. I don't know of any literature that, that proves that, but yeah, those could be factors that are involved with that as well, too. We have to you know, consider a lot of different things as we're gathering different data. Yeah. I'd be interested to see. Um, the first thing that popped into my head was like a skilled athlete. Like if yes. you took say a discus thrower, shot put thrower, where they're always spinning one direction and throwing with that hand, what would be the differences from a cerebellar level, uh, in the, the coordination of that? I got to imagine right. the dominant side. I, uh, I see a lot of gymnasts. My wife was a gymnast. We see a lot of gymnasts, um, cause it's a close knit community and, her and I have gotten into long discussions about turning gymnasts have a, a specific direction. They prefer to turn and always turn. And my wife who I love more than anything in the world. And I say this with love is a weirdo. Um, she would always tell me when I did beam, I would turn in one direction. And when she danced like floor routine, she would turn in another direction. And that's the kind of stuff, just like you said, Nick, it gets me thinking is like, I wonder how we could like test that on someone and find that true type of, of asymmetry that might be there. I was a baseball player all my life. Uh, I played, played football as well too. So that rattled my brain, but I was, I'm a right-handed batter and thrower. So I'm always turning to the left. I am a classic example of something like that, that pattern being built, that pattern being learned, cerebellar involvement with that. I have trouble with just standing rotation. I'm tighter going right because I'm so used to swinging and following through, throwing and following through, rotating to the left through my torso. So yeah, there's some, some really cool stuff that's out there. So, so that brings me into my next question and, and perfectly. And I, I, same thing, right? I was a right-handed baseball player. You have more rotation that way. Sure. What percentage of that or, or percentage isn't the right word, but like, uh, what involvement do you think is central cerebellar motor cortex versus peripheral adaptations, that side stronger, that side has more joint play that you can actually physically structurally change. How, and how do you differentiate I, those two or how do you test that? Yeah. I don't know a way to differentiate it. Honestly, I yeah. don't. And that, that might just be on me. It, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um, this is something that I think gets us into these contentious arguments that you see online, you know, cause that's the best place to have arguments. Um, but, um, <laughs> I look at everything from having a neurological component. That's just the way I look at it. It doesn't mean you have to look at it like that. But if you approach me, like we could talk about your needling. We could talk about, about cupping, uh, tape, 
I take kind of a neurological approach. It doesn't mean that that's the only aspect. There are multiple things going on within the system. That is the, that is, I thought there was going to be a big reveal with what I was saying, but no, um, you guys know how my, I ramble so much. Yeah. Um, but I look, I have, a, I have an approach from what, how is the brain kind of governing this and looking into this, but you can't over, you can't separate it. I think that's the point I'm trying to make is you cannot separate this stuff out. So I don't necessarily get into, well, it's more, it's this much percentage versus this or something like that. Cause to be honest with you, my, my best answer is, I don't know. I, I really don't know. We can't remove all of the influence of the central nervous system on the periphery, but you cannot eliminate the peripheral receptors and stimulation, the way that input comes up through the system and its influence on the central nervous system. So I tend to have that just more holistic approach all the time. I think I lean more towards the neurological side because I guess just through my study in my mind, maybe it's just because I'm fixated on it or it just now is more easy to understand for me. Um, I just take that, that, that more neurological approach, but I do appreciate, you know, for instance, you mentioned periphery, what's the classic example, biomechanics, you cannot overlook how a joint is functioning and moving. I see the influence of the nervous system, but we do have structural issues that could be ultimately more just the structural issue itself. I think what would help us is having a way to kind of differentiate, is this more higher level or is it more peripheral? And I think that's where your examination process comes into play, which is going to be different from person to person. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of thought of that as you're going, I I'm, I'm hundred percent on board with you. I think the nervous system is driving the game, right? The muscle doesn't just decide to do something. Um, the, the nerve has to give it that signal. I do think there's a component of if there's a joint restriction or a weakness on one side, that that peripheral input may cause the brain to make a different decision on how it decides to move, right? Like sure. if your right leg stronger than your left leg, then potentially you're going to use that side. Um, is it stronger because it's actually hypertrophied on that side or stronger because you have better activation patterns, right? You can yeah. kind of keep playing that, that circle. Um, but what I was just thinking, as you said that you could probably do some higher level cerebellar tests. Like, so you could look locally at the hip joint and then look at the coordination of the whole pattern and, and maybe tie some of that together as far as looking at central versus peripheral. Like Absolutely. Test this the is, system a little bit. Exactly. And, and that's, yeah. that's, that's my approach is I, my biggest focus is assessment. And, you know, you, I, I teach this to my students and I think some of them get a little frustrated because they want like fancy techniques and they want to see the cool stuff that's out. There's so many cool techniques out there and learn all of them, by the way, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not inclined to being fixed to just one system, but if you assess thoroughly, your treatment is so much easier because you then have the ability to understand exactly what's going on. Maybe not exactly poor word you know, what's going on with the system. You have a very good idea, at least from a like hierarchical list perspective is I can go, okay, this seems like it's top priority. Maybe it's more central. Maybe it's more higher level. Maybe it's a little bit more, uh, more, uh, uh lower. Somebody who's in acute pain. I'm not going to go through my fancy neuro ninja stuff when someone is sitting there and they can't find a position of relief. 
I'm going to do direct pain modulation uh, uh, techniques on them to get them out of pain. So that's a, a sense that I can think, that's one example I can think about where I'm really focusing more on the specific local area, the complaint, if you will. But if somebody's got chronic issues, like you're mentioning, like the, like, uh, the hip joint, you know, somebody's just constantly coming back and it's not getting better. It's not getting better. Well, what have you tried? Well, a lot of range of motion, a lot of soft tissue manipulation, mobilizations have worked. Okay. Those are effective. How did they go? They felt great for a while. And then it just kind of came back. Those are situations that tend to be more that higher level system. There's something going on with the central nervous system, the brain in particular, that is going back to that dysfunctional pattern. It goes into like motor learning, for instance, which brings it back to the cerebellum as well as, as well as the cortical structures. That's a situation where we have to look a little bit more higher level. So if you're a little bit more thorough in your exam where you're appreciating not only the peripheral structures, not only the local structures, but you're looking at it from more, more global perspective, which should include the central nervous system, the brain that kind of governs everything, then you will truly know what's going on. And you can start to determine whether it's not, whether it is more of a functional higher level brain type of issue, or am I going to be successful by working very local within the system, maybe just a lower extremities type of dysfunction. And I can do well with a lot of my manual techniques. Yeah. And, and um, I don't, I don't do cerebellum specifically, but we do a lot of central, some central guarding. And it's interesting because our dry needling model is like, we literally frame it local segmental and systemic, right? Look at the local yeah. tissues, look at the peripheral nerve pathway along, and then, and then how's the sure. system doing. Um, and so I think from a treatment standpoint, that's exactly how, how, how I like to think. And, and that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and I think when you think that way, it'll help guide your treatments, right? Because again, like you're saying, there's a million different things you can do and they're all awesome, but how do you decide which one to use when, uh, yeah. and, and yeah. target peripheral versus central. So I, I know we wanted to kind of tie into this. How does it help when, when you're saying, okay, I think it's more of a cerebellar issue from a manual therapy standpoint, what things are you adding to kind of supplement what you're doing from a training standpoint? Um, like separating clinic from clinical from more like exercise. Yeah. Like, so you decide that, or I shouldn't say you decide, but you're, you're looking at some of that, that central input, the cerebellar input and how it's affecting some of the coordination patterns, their, their movement decisions. What are you going to do from a manual therapy standpoint to help that person? Hmm. So again, it goes back to that, uh, uh, cere uh cerebro cerebellar connection. So when you when you want to do a voluntary action, it starts at the high level, you know, that, that, that prefrontal cortex, uh, frontal lobe, basically, um, you decide what you want to do. I want to reach for my coffee cup. What happens that uh, cerebro cerebellar co connection is that that side cerebellum sends a copy of what we want to do to the cerebellum. The cerebellum then matches it with memories of how we've done that movement in the past. The, uh, that, is called, that's called an efferent copy. What that does basically is it helps smooths over and coordinate that movement pattern. It's so weird to talk about that kind of stuff because it happens like that, but that copy gets sent to the cerebellum. Cerebellum then also starts to take in all that proprioceptive information from the same side, the limb that is going to be doing that reaching and grasping. And it starts to basically check on all of the proprioceptive information that's coming in. It also has to appreciate all of the 
tactile information. What if my shirt is pulled in an awkward way and all of a sudden I feel resistance at my shoulder when I'm trying to reach for that? What if I'm, uh, you know, I've got the microphone in front of me, but I got to reach in front of me like that. I know I'm going to hit the microphone. So I'm using like visual information. What position I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm sitting, I'm upright. My, my vestibular system is playing a role in there. So all this information and, and input to output in the cerebellum is, is, is a ratio of 40 to one. So it takes in a lot of that inform, that sensation, that input to communicate with the cerebrum to enact just very simple voluntary actions. So from a manual therapy perspective, it's just that it's input. So it, kind of takes me out of specifically is this cerebellum to really just looking at more so input from a holistic perspective into the system. That goes back to that opposite side cortex, which we know connects with the the cerebellum on the same side. So within my exam, I'll do specific sensory tests. I'll test things like vibration, uh, sharp. I'll test uh, light touch. I'll even get into like tissue dragging and stuff like that too. So I'll like move the tissue around and see, is there a directional preference to improving someone's movement pattern? And if I can find something that has preference that takes preference uh, to the movement pattern, I'm going to use that within my therapy, but knowing that that system, those connections as well too, I'm going to move that area of the body that I found to be dysfunctional. So we go back to the, the rapid coordinated movements, the, the RCMs. If I'm doing it on my, my wrist and hand, basically pronating and supinating versus doing it on my shoulder, let's say there's a difference in my right shoulder versus down in my hand, like pretty smooth like this, not so much at my shoulder. I'm going to move the shoulder. That, that's, the, that's what's really nice about all this is, is it, it kind of goes directly to where you're finding the dysfunction because that's where the movement's occurring. So what I can utilize is that my shoulder has got some issues there as far as smooth coordinated patterns. So what I can do is just choose, maybe slow down a movement pattern, start to think about it a little bit more consciously, but make it more unique to the individual, novel to the individual. So something that's a little bit uh, uh, different. So figure eights, for instance, I I love Indian clubs. I love anything that swings. I love swinging clubs and stuff like that. That is so great, not only for just the shoulders in general, but also just for driving proprioception, which feeds that same side cerebellum because it's multi-planar movements and it's helping to feed all of that sensory information that I was talking about. That's proprioceptive, but you also have to consider that there's that conscious touch aspect that I was telling you about. So like if I find that vibration shows benefit to the movement pattern, I might use some sort of a vibration tool as someone is going through that novel pattern. So now I'm driving proprioception and motor learning with the movement pattern. And I know it's coming from the opposite side cortex. Sorry, it's my right shoulder, this side cortex, and the, and it's feeding into the same side cerebellum as those two areas are communicating. But now if I provide that input into the system, I can actually feed that opposite side cortex as well as the cerebellum at the same time. Then you can throw in vi- visual fixation. And some people, it sounds a little bit more complex than, uh, than what it actually is. Literally looking in a mirror while you're doing this movement, just watching yourself being able to do the movement can feed that cerebellum and feed 
that cerebral cortex to help clean up that body map and clean up that motor pattern as well too. Then you can start to challenge things from a vestibular level, maybe using an unbalanced surface, maybe standing on one leg, even just changing your stance can challenge the system a little bit more. What that can basically do is drive all that input that goes that a lot of people know goes to the cortex, but it also goes into that, that cerebellum to help coordinate those smooth movement patterns. So really all the manual therapy that everybody's doing, it's always happening. It's always has been happening, but we just are appreciating on a different level when we start to think about like, how is that influencing the cerebellum and how is that cerebellar influence helping with the movement patterns itself? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things that you said that really kind of hit home it, a, a the manipulation of the environment and how much just changing what you're looking at or the the surface you're on or, or what's around you how, how effective that that can be um and then just kind of that looking at the manual therapy more as a, a neurologic type of a treatment approach um yeah I, I i feel like that's a trend we're starting to see in manual therapy and, and i hope absolutely you know, in my world in physical, I'm a physical therapist in that world. I feel like there's a trend away from manual therapy because mm -hmm. I don't know why. Um, but we're looking yeah. at it as it's like this short term kind of fix. And, and, and I, like you're saying, I look at it as another way to challenge the system, to change the input, to accomplish some of the movement goals that, that we know are so important. Uh, but not as like, it's not two separate entities. Like we're fighting this battle of manual therapy versus exercise. Like, no, they're, they play the same role if, if you look at the it the right role. way. Yeah. yeah if you look really at do. it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is, uh, I don't think like what I just described to you is not a, any different than what I did 10 years ago. I just understand it on a different level now. And, you know, right. my friend, Perry Nicholson, stop chasing pain. He says this perfectly. I love this quote is everything works. You just have to find what works for the individual. So you, you're, you're absolutely right, Nick. The, the, the argument of moving away from manual therapy, there's people, their whole gimmick is crapping on manual therapy. I love that so you use the word gimmick. Yeah. See, I'm a big wrestling fan. So that's, so it's in my, <laughs> it's in my lexicon. Fine. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But I'm not going to engage because I, that, that stuff stays with me. I get too heated, but it all has a purpose and a place. Are there things out there that absolutely don't work on anybody? and could possibly be harmful. Yeah, absolutely. But for the most part, all these techniques and all this manual work, all this stuff, it all can help someone. And I think that's the approach that we need to take. So again, I don't necessarily change things dramatically. I just understand it a little bit differently. And it just kind of hones in on where I'm focusing with a lot of the different therapies. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, that's, that's a big, big uh, discussion to get into because I, I see that fight and I try to stay on the outside. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've gone back and forth on whether you want to get into that or not, but I'm seeing so many new grads now that are anti-manual therapy. You know, you talk to really? people and they're like, oh, they're graduating PT school and they've never been introduced to manual therapy or better yet, they've been told manual therapy doesn't work. Hmm. And so they're avoiding it. They're avoiding learning those techniques, avoiding getting into that world. And um, as, as rehab pros that can touch people as part of your licensure, it's such a, like that input that you can provide is so immediate. And so you just get such an immediate response with it. You have to, I think you have to have it as part of your, your toolbox. Um, yeah. And, and I would say, you know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would agree with you in the fact that you said it doesn't necessarily change the way you're doing things, but to some degree, 
It does because it doesn't require if you're if your intent is I need to uh, break up this tissue or I need to remove this fascial block or I need to you know change this joint uh, capsule play. Your technique tends to be more forceful, more painful. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when you look at it from a neurologic lens, you at least have the opportunity to say, I just need to change the input. And if for that person, it's say two pounds of pressure that changes the input, then, then I don't need to be super aggressive yeah. because I'm changing the neural input. I'm not necessarily trying to move and mobilize structures. And, yeah. um, and I think that's the part that, that I hope when we look at manual therapy, we see that evolution and, uh, yeah. You know, you, you could speak, speak better, obviously to the, the physical therapy uh, realm of healthcare, but you know, uh, in the chiropractic world, which I think we should all be working together anyways, but with, I don't really see that too much in in the chiropractic, uh, world, you know, we kind of, uh, prided ourselves on manual therapy with manipulation, but what I, what I think this is just complete hypothesis on my part. This is what I think. Um, I think like you had said, new grads coming out, manual therapy doesn't work. I think it's because we're starting to see evidence come out that is debunking what we once thought. For instance, the idea of like fascial deformation with, with moderate pressure, we know that it takes a great deal of pressure to physically deform the fascia. And I talk about this in, in rock tape courses. And I say, that doesn't mean what we, what, that we weren't doing something we were doing something, but again, it's what we were doing, we understand from a different perspective now. And I don't know, may, maybe new grads see research that says, okay, um, we're looking at a very specific thing that people think uh, happened with manual therapy and look, it doesn't happen. So then they completely denounce all of it. But what the way that I am appreciating it is that, okay, well, it didn't work the way that we thought, but it is working because I'm getting people better. They're feeling better. So what is actually happening? And that's why I have a little bit more of a neurological approach because I'm starting to have the explanations are coming up from a neurological lens is like, you know, people, people crap on kinesiology tape all the time. It does work, but there are studies that show that it doesn't work. And you look at the study and it's like healthy, athletic 20 year olds. it's like, okay, well, you're at, you're, you're asking to improve their jump height. They're not injured. And you're asking for, you know, the tape to kind of increase the, the springing mechanism of the, of the musculature. It doesn't do that, you know? So of course that's going to be a study that's going to show that it's, you know, negative effects or not negative effects, but it just doesn't work. But if you take somebody who's injured and they have pain, we know that there is decreased tactile acuity with people who are in pain. And if you put some tape on them, which is basically tactile input, you will see an improvement in tactile acuity. And oh, oh, by the way, you also do see an improvement in pain. So I, I don't know, maybe again, this is my hypothesis. Maybe you're seeing a lot of the students that you, that you mentioned that maybe they're just looking at all of the, uh, it doesn't work research and they're not expanding into, well, but it doesn't work to do that. It works to do this kind of perspective. I don't know. I I hope, I mean, we fight that battle all the time with, with cupping and dry needling in that, you know, traditionally acupuncture was based on traditional Chinese medicine. And okay. So you can argue meridians don't exist and and this energy doesn't exist. Yeah. Cool. So you're telling me the theory they came up. Yeah. You tell me the theory they came up with 2,500 years ago. Does it work? Yeah. I mean, I'd hope, right. I'd hope we learned something (laughs) in 2,500 years. Uh, I mean, we've, we know a lot more about the human body. You know, I, I got, I got, I, I had someone attempt to troll me on uh, Instagram 
Um, and I say attempt because uh, I uh, not I'm not proud of this, but I, I fight back. Uh, I just don't like I don't like the argument. If if we can have a discussion like this, and you have one side, and I have a completely different side, I'm more than happy. But please please stop yelling at each other online. Let's do, we're all trying to make people better. Let's do that. But somebody was trying to troll me and basically like I made a comment. I kind of, I'm kind of even forgetting which, uh, which post it was, but um, basically the argument was that we don't know how anything works. And I felt that that was just way too broad of a statement is to, to understand that, okay, well um, you know, what we're doing right now, we're getting people better, blah, 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 but nothing really works. So whatever my post was, it's only a trick when you, when you don't understand how it works. And I, I say that because I've had people like I've shown them cool stuff that, that I, that I found and they're like, Oh, that's a trick. And I was like, well, but it's not a trick if we understand what it is. And I'm not saying I understand it right at that moment, but you know, the, the comment was, well, we don't really know how anything works. I'm like, what do you mean? We don't know how anything works. And I hope what the intention was, was that we're still figuring out how everything works, exactly how it works too. And I'm, I'm going to choose to believe that that was kind of where that was going because I totally disagree with the idea of we don't know how anything works. And I think you might get, you know, different individuals, they see some of the, uh, uh, the evidence that says, well, this doesn't do that, this doesn't do that. And then people throw their hands up and like, well, but nothing works, you know? So they just get frustrated with that situation. But I, I disagree. We, we know what we know now. We're going to learn more in the future. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the approach that we should all take is like, we're always still learning, right? Yeah. I, I agree with you hundred percent. There was an Eric Cressy quote years ago. I read, I was still a student, I think. And it said something like, you know, I hope that I look back at the things I was doing five years ago and saying they're wrong because that means I've grown as a professional, right? I've learned things over five yeah. years. And, and I, it was something I, I read early from him. And I was like, man, that's just a fantastic quote. And, and something I, I kind of hold my hat to. And when you say, my, trick, uh, pers- Oh, yeah. I was just going to say go well, people, people go all the time about this. Oh, it's a trick who cares, right? I changed the input to the nervous system. They're able to move without pain. I don't care if it's a trick. (laughs) I I, I get, you know, I get into this, this, I get into this too, because I I like to say this, but I I say it more tongue in cheek. You know, people argue about like the placebo effect and stuff like that. And it's like, if somebody's getting better, does it matter? That's my ultimate goal. And look, somebody's going to yell at me right now as they're listening to this. I I get it. We need to understand how because we can't rely on placebo, anything like that. But if someone's getting, my point is, if someone's getting better, then that's great. Then we can move on from there and be like, okay, why are they getting better? And I, I that's 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 my ultimate goal. Because ultimately, I'm I'm a clinician. Ultimately, I'm trying to get people better. That's why I got into this. Right. Uh, yeah, we're on the same page there too. The placebo thing is so overrated. Um, to the point I, where- I personally think in the in with placebo effect and manual therapy, when I see that yeah. in in studies, oh, it's the placebo effect manual therapy. That means you have to keep going. Like drug therapies and stuff like that, I can get it. I can get on board with that a little bit. It's like okay, this placebo effect, you know, the the biopsychosocial. My personal thing, and I, I'm not a researcher. Again, I'm not being contentious. I'm just you know giving my opinions. But um, what I personally think is that if you see a manual therapy study and it kind of chalks it up basically like, Oh, it was a placebo effect. Be like, then keep going. 
keep looking at it. You know, look at the methodology of the, of the study, look at the different parameters. And again, I'm not a researcher, so I shouldn't be necessarily telling people how to do research, but I just feel like you have to figure out why that works. You know, whether and it's I, dry needling, whether it's tape, you're put like, like sham needling and sham tape are the, the one things that I, I have to laugh out loud at. It's like, what is sham tape? Like I could put duct tape on the right spot and that tactile sensation is providing the right kind of stimulation and it actually could help someone feel better. It could because it's touch. I think we can have this conversation because of our appreciation of how the neural input is playing in the sure. effect. If you yeah. really want to believe that it's the physiology or you're changing the tissue, then, then I get the sham thing, but. Okay. Yeah. 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 You point. can't, you can't separate it. Um, and, and manual therapy, a big part of it is that approach. Like if I attack you with my thumb and it's, I have a, a negative affect and I'm being aggressive and, and you feel that that's a bad situation it doesn't matter what I do with my hands. It's going to be a negative. You're not going to do well That's a versus point. the confidence to execute a manual therapy technique with confidence. You know, it's going to work. I'm going to have better effects with that. Not because yeah. I'm some, you know, Oh, it's the way that person did it. It's just the whole experience plays into the, the way that person's brain perceives the treatment effect. You, you can't separate yeah. it. It just doesn't. Yeah. I think that's a big thing in manual therapy is, is the, the push towards lighter uh, applications and I, I, I kind of try to reword it. I don't say that we have to be light. I say that start light and then go to the patient's tolerance, you know, and I'm I not the first person who's ever said that, but mm -hmm. like, we don't have to hurt. You, you said it perfectly. We don't need to hurt someone during treatment because usually when someone says, oh, I feel great. It's because you just stopped. You took, taken away that, that, that threat and they get this sympathetic dump. So they feel better because you've stopped and actually they're exhausted because you've been putting them in this sympathetic upregulation during the therapy. They want you to stop. They're gritting their teeth. They're tearing <laughs> and you've stopped. They're just exhausted. So they, they mistake that for feeling better. But then what you, how you know that it's not getting better is it keeps coming back. So people look down, oh, light techniques. Come on. That's not going to work. Right. It's not that you have to be feather like gentle with everything that you do. It's that we want to just appreciate the nervous system. And you said that perfectly, Nick. Yeah. I think let the patient guide how much input they need. We all have people that you can like, you can dig an elbow into somebody and they're like, oh, that feels so good. Just kind of hit that spot. Cool. That's, like the that's the input they need. It's a, it's a yeah. positive input versus you touch somebody and, and they, they upregulate and whether that's Have a you ever touch driven? someone and they completely like the lightest touch and they just yeah. kind of pull away. That's a threat. You're going right. to tell me I'm going to stick an elbow in someone super deep like that. Like right. that's something I have to address. But if you're stuck on the paradigm that the structure is the problem, then as the clinician, you want to do that aggressive technique because you got to change Understood. the, you got to change the structure. You're not worried about the, the yeah. input of the threat. Right. So yeah. 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 And I think you can be successful like that. You can help people with that as well, too. The, 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 the appreciation is just the individual nervous system and, yes. and putting them on threat could make it worse. Yep. And you don't right. know for sure if you're going to get the, the positive result you want. So I yep. think it's just understanding it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And uh, I credit the needling game to, to kind of really honing my, my thought on that, you know, dry needling in, in the, traditionally we're talking about, Oh, let's twitch the heck out of somebody. So we can create this lesion yeah. and change the scroll. But if you do that to the wrong person and they feel it threatful, I don't care what you did to the physiology locally. It, it's, they're not going to have a good response. So yeah, 
it's just, it becomes it up. The, the needling is that much more where you got to upregulate it. Um, but I think it applies to all manual therapy. I don't, I don't, I think it applies to all activity too. Like how many, there's so many books out now about athletic competition and they tell you the best athletes are relaxed during their competition. The classic example is Usain Bolt, all the slow-mo of him uh, running and you see like his face is contorting and doing all that. It's because he's relaxed and he's the best at his sport. So it's a great example of that is we, obviously the sympathetic override is there with exercise, stuff like that. But like the best athletes, the best movers are usually relaxed and calm during that activity. And yeah, you could argue respiratory rates up, heart rates up. So yeah, sympathetic uh, upregulation, but that's not, that's not a threat to them. It's there for the function. Yeah. I, you know, I hope in the next 10 years, my understanding of, of the autonomics and sympathetic upregulation and how it affects the uh, visceral systems versus local at the joint level or muscular level. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the next evolution of, of thinking is. Well, it's interesting. It can bring us back to the original uh, topic, topic at hand is the cerebellar, cerebellar input. We, we are, I am finding it. I say we are, but this is the research has been out there forever. We talk so much about the motor coordination aspect of the cerebellum, but there's so much with the affective and emotional aspect as well too. So there is a lot to be said about how the cerebellum functions from a vis with visceral input with emotional input as well too. There's an area in the central aspect of the cerebellum that is referred to as the limbic cerebellum. This shares functional zones with the vestibular and the visual system. So if you've ever seen someone on threat and their eyes kind of just dart around, like look at any prey animal, their eyes are just kind of darting around. So what I was talking about a little bit earlier, uh, the uh, idea of when you're on, on threat, you're stressed out, you don't, you don't quote unquote, see things as easily. Like, oh, I just, I completely missed that out of the corner of my eye. It's because I'm overworked and, and freaked out. Um, there is a cerebellar component. And we actually are seeing in, in, in different um, uh, anatomy studies, there is a huge component to this more um, uh, perceptive and visceral, even like cardiovascular inputs play a role. And it's an area of the cerebellum that actually is much larger than where the motor coordination centers are located as well too. So it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, Thomas Willis, you know, the name from the circle of Willis, that the an anatomical structure, he referred to as the cerebellum as the mistress of, of involuntary function. And again, it's been out there forever. It's just something that I never saw. So I feel stupid when you come across something that's like, oh yeah, but there is so much with like the involuntary, uh, action that goes on. There's connections with the autonomic nervous system. There's, there's connections with the emotional limbic, uh, uh, systems as well too, and arousal as well. So like there is so much more to put into play here when it comes to looking at the cerebellum within your, your assessment process, somebody who's on threat, somebody who's stressed out, high sympathetic, it's going to affect their movement. There has, we have to incorporate the cerebellum with that as well, too. There's actually lateralization in the cerebellum as well, too. A lot of people talk about how, you know, uh, the, the left side of the brain is more like that analytical side uh, where you're seeing uh, like uh, uh, visual spatial function, executive function. And then the right side is, uh, I'm sorry, I flipped that. Right side is more visual spatial cortical. And then left side is more like language function. You actually see that crossing over into the cerebellum where the right cerebellum 
coordinates with the left cortex, there's more of that language uh, function happening in the right cerebellum. Right cortex, more visual spatial, left cerebellum, more visual spatial. So what this, what I'm trying to do is try to figure out better assessments to incorporate that aspect of cerebellar functioning. Um, and I think like there are, you know, different uh, cognition tests and language tests that I think could be coordinated and thrown on top of movement. You know, I always say to my, to my wife, like she's talking about remodeling a room and I'm like, I can't see it. And she's just uh, this color here, this color there. She puts a swath of color on the wall. I'm like, I can't see it unless the entire wall is colored. Cause that's just, I don't have the visual spatial capacity. I have a lot of issues on my left side with my left cerebellum. So I'm not saying that proves everything I'm, I'm trying to tell you right now, but there is that, that is that connection. So there is some more interesting stuff, especially when you get into like the limbic cerebellum, you start to think about how motion affects our movement. Um, there, there's so much more to look at with that as well too. And that's a big thing that I've been looking into is the, the non-motor functions of the cerebellum. Cause any textbook you look at, they focus more on the non-motor function as well. And they kind of briefly pass like, oh yeah, there's visceral, there's, you know, blood pressure involvement with that as well too. But there's so much more to it than just getting someone to move coordinated and, and smoothly. Yeah. I, I always thought the color thing was just a guy thing. My wife yells at me all the time too. The color. Uh, like, I just, my wife, I, I feel like we're getting into like gender stereotypes. So that's not my intention, but uh, my wife is just so much better at like making something look good. She, re, she redid our bedroom and it looks fantastic, but she's describing like what she wants to do. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I just can't see it. I just can't, like, I can't visualize it in my mind. And yeah. once the wall was painted, I'm like, this looks really good. And she's like, oh, I was so worried you would hate it because you couldn't see. I'm like, no, I have to see the whole room and do it, but also trust her. And she has better style than me anyway. So go for yeah. it. <laughs> likewise, likewise, same, same story yeah. over here uh, just recently. Um, the emotional piece, uh, you know, you tied that in there and you cannot eliminate that. I've seen just the you know, manual therapy and emotional releases, people that have had emotional or other types of trauma and what you're seeing in, in, in postural tone in those areas or, or around, yeah. you know, you can't separate. It. And I, I've known, I figured it out a long time ago. Like if somebody, let's use a car accident. If somebody hits somebody else, mm. the rehab for those people are easy, right? If they cause the accident, you treat their neck, they get better. If you're yeah. the person that got hit, different game. The whole rehab's different. Yep. Yep. It can't Look at be, someone on threat. They, they huddle in, right? Yeah. They there's movement patterns involved. The, there is neural circuitry of the withdrawal reflex into the cerebellum. There are no seceptive pathways into the cerebellum. So you if you're looking at movement, you are looking, you have to involve the cerebellum, but you also have to incorporate that there is an emotional component to certain movements as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and tying that all in, it comes down to, you know, Frank Argana, who is the, the president of dry kneeling. When I was a student with him observing, he's like, everything's neuro, everything's neuro. And, uh, the more you got, you know, you, every year you get further in that rabbit hole and you're like, yeah, should have, should have paid more attention to neuroanatomy class. <laughs> well, yeah, seriously. Uh, Eric Cobb, the founder of Z health, uh, says it perfectly. We, 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 uh, if I can paraphrase him, uh, we were all doing neurology. We just didn't know it. And I mean, again, that's the perspective I take. I choose to accept that someone doesn't want that perspective. There is biomechanical explanations for stuff, but I, I lean towards the more neurological side because it up until this point has explained everything 
uh, I should say at this point, it is, it, it can explain just about everything. I've, I've, I've not found too many things that I can't put a neuro swing on, Yeah, you know? So nothing works. The big part. The electric, yeah. If, if the, yeah. <laughs> the signal's got to get back and forth, nothing works, right? The electricity has got to be on. So, yeah, I, th- I think the, the way to promote it, you know, kind of wrap it all up is, is look a little bit more into neuroanatomy, look at a little bit more into your practice of more of a kind of a neurological approach. It's not, what we're saying is not to tell anybody that you've been doing it wrong this whole time. That's totally not what anybody is saying. Cause like I said before, everything works. It's just, you have to find the individual. I think it will augment your practice quite a bit when you can take a little bit more of a neurological approach to things. Yeah. I think the, the good manual therapists are doing that, whether, yeah. whatever they, you know, uh, I don't, I think that touch and that feel and all that stuff, you're, you're adapting to neural input and what the patient's given you anyway. It's just maybe a different lens to, to look at it. 100%. Yep. Hey man, this was a lot of fun. I, uh, yeah, it was, it was, good, it was a good conversation. Um, so where can people find out more about you and, and kind of what you're up to? Um, well, I am, uh, on Instagram. Uh, that's the only social media I can tolerate. Uh, it's at dr John Campione. So it's dr. J-O-H-N-C-A-M-P-I-O-N-E. Um, I'm uh, active there. You know, uh, again, I love a spirited conversation. Let's not fight. Uh, I just, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I will talk to you about anything. Despite, I don't care what your uh, opinion is on it. If we are polite to one another, it's so much easier to talk to you about it. So um, just for my sanity, that's why I say that. But uh, Instagram, uh, I am located in the uh, Western suburbs of uh, Chicago. Uh, actually, um, not in practice right at the moment, but in April, I'm actually going to get into uh, back into practice because I'm uh, working with a partner to open up a, a new facility. So yeah, that's still in the works, but I'm teaching uh, at uh, National University of Health Sciences. Any future Cairo students you're looking for a school to go to, I can you know talk to you about that. And then, of course, uh, Rock Tape, anything Rock Tape. I'm also the host of the Rock Tape podcast. So if you guys want another podcast and you don't immediately hate my voice and want to listen to it more, check out the Rock Tape podcast. Uh, I'm going to be relaunching it uh, next week. Um, beginning of March, uh, I've been kind of on hiatus since last year was last year. So, um, that's, uh, basically the other resource too. I'm actually going to try to do, uh, kind of what you do, Nick with yours is throw it up on YouTube so people can watch as well as listen as well too. So look out for that, some YouTube stuff. So yeah, with Zoom, it's easy enough, right? I'm, I'm already doing it. It's such a more personal conversation. Yep. So I was like, I got the video. Why not throw it up there? Right. Yeah. Easy enough. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, hey, that was a lot of fun. Uh, we'll we'll have to do it again here soon after we start playing sure, with some more brain stuff. Anytime, yeah. All right, we'll talk to you. Thank you for enjoying the Fit for Tomorrow podcast. Hope you're able to pick up a few things to help you live and move better. We'd really appreciate a like, share, review, or follow in order to help us continue to grow this podcast and help more people like you looking to feel and move better as active adults. Thanks again. We'll see you on the next episode.